This morning I want to talk to you about Jesus and taxes. <laughs> I know it's not April, but still. What is Caesar's and what is God's? That's going to be our message for this morning. Now we come to, in our study through the Gospel of Matthew, we come to a very familiar passage in chapter 22. You can turn over in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22, and we'll be looking at verses 15 to 22. Matthew 22, verses 15 to 22. Now, this particular passage has a very common phrase in it. We've all heard people say this, Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God. We're very familiar with that little catchphrase that's found in this text of Scripture. But this particular passage has so much more than just that little statement in it. We're going to try to unpack it for you this morning. And um, it's great to live in a country where we are free to worship the Lord. Amen? It's great to be in a place that we don't have to worry about people barging through the doors and shutting us down here this morning because we're teaching the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, We love our country, and uh, we also realize... Hopefully, you realize this, that if we didn't pay our taxes, our country would come to a screeching halt. Our country provides certain things for us, the government does, protection, uh, roads, highways, airways, certain things that they provide for us. And therefore, we're taxed to help out with the cost of those items. Now, granted... Things have gotten a little bit out of hand, okay, with the politicians in Washington, D.C. That's a given, all right? But I want you to understand that if we didn't have a government, we'd have no services. If we had no public provisions, we'd have no protection and so forth. Uh, It would be a very precarious situation. Government plays a role. Now, you may not like the government. Um, You may not appreciate the role that they play. You may gripe every time you've got to send in taxes. And there are some people, even in the church today, that believe that it's not biblical to pay your taxes. Those people usually end up in jail, by the way, so I wouldn't advise that. But they, were, they believe that, no, it's not a biblical thing to pay taxes to a secular government. Uh, they're refusing to pay that. Now, we're going to discover a little bit about that today. But I want you to remember where we're at in this section of Scripture Remember, this is Wednesday in Passion Week, the last week of Jesus Christ's life. Friday, he will give up his life. He will be crucified. Sunday, he will rise from the dead. Remember, Monday, he rode in on on the file of a donkey into Jerusalem, and they hailed him as Messiah, what we call Palm Sunday. It actually happened on a Monday. Then Tuesday, he went back. The parade ended at the temple. Tuesday, he went back to that same temple and he cleaned it out of all the money changers, of all the, the uh, sales people that were involved there. It was a real money-making scheme they arranged there in the temple. The religious leaders did. And so now it's Wednesday. He cleaned the temple and he's been acknowledged as the Messiah. He's hailed by all the people gathered around as this conquering hero that's going to come into Jerusalem and overthrow the Roman oppression. That's what they thought. That's the kind of Messiah they were looking for. Now, they were a little concerned when he rode in on a donkey and not some big white horse. They were a little concerned when he went to the temple instead of the Roman fort. 
they thought, wait a minute, what's going on? I thought he was going to be this militaristic leader and overthrow the government and lead us into freedom. So he didn't fit into their expectations as far as their Messiah was concerned. So here it's Wednesday. He's back in the temple, which was just cleansed the day before. He's walking around the temple and he's teaching amongst all these people. They're all gathered there. And he's teaching on the kingdom. He's teaching the gospel. He's probably teaching on hypocrisy and self-made religion. He's teaching a bunch of different things. We don't know what he's actually taught because it doesn't tell us. So all that would be conjecture. But this massive crowd of people are very interested. They're very fascinated, you might say, intrigued with what he's teaching them. And he had just finished telling them and explaining three parables of judgment against unbelieving Israel. Now remember, the religious leaders are there as well. And he particularly directed these parables against the temple rulers, those who had challenged his authority. And so here he is in a public place. The religious leaders come. They had challenged his authority. He hammers out to them three parable judgments directed right at them where everybody can hear. And now they have to respond. They have to formulate a response. They can't just let it go. They can't just turn and walk away and go, okay, well, he won that one. No. I mean, their credibility, the the Pharisees and the religious leaders, their credibility is at stake. And so the Lord Jesus had just devastated them with these three parables, these prophecies of judgment. And they understood what he was talking about because look at what it says in verse 45 of chapter 21. 45, verse 45 of chapter 21, it says, When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, what does it say? They perceived he was speaking about who? About them. They knew exactly what he was saying. So he not only really devastated their physical domain, he went into their temple. They didn't ask him to do this, he just marched in. And he kicked everybody out because they were selling all these things and they were ripping people off. And he said his father's house would be a, temp, a house of prayer. And they've made it a den of thieves. So he went in and he kicked everybody out. That was their physical domain. That was kind of like the Vatican is to Catholicism. Okay, you don't want to go over in the Vatican and start toppling over statues and saying, oh, this is all, I mean, they'll throw you in jail. Okay, they'll be all over you. So he devastated their physical domain, but he also devastated their religious domain. He exposed their unbelief. He exposed their ungodliness of the religious leaders. And they resented Jesus because he basically took their masks off. He allowed people to see them for who they were, the hypocritical, self-righteous religious leaders of the day. And he had all these people following him, and that's what they wanted. They wanted all the people to follow them. So they were really getting upset at this point. Now, remember, he didn't go to them and say, hey, do you mind if I go in and tidy up the temple a little bit? He didn't do that. Or do you mind if I heal this person? Or do you mind if I teach on this? He didn't check in with them. They were the authority. And they were very upset about this. Most of all, they were really upset at his claim to be the Messiah, the Son of God. They thought that was blasphemous. So they're irate. They're angry. They resent Jesus, and they resent him simply because he opposes them. He's not going along with the program. 
They resent him because he cleansed the temple without getting permission. See, he is everything that they're not. That's the problem. He's genuine. They're hypocrites. He threatens the system that they exist in, the system of self-righteousness. But he stands for God's righteousness, a system of works as opposed to a system of faith. Isn't that the way it is? I mean, you can go out today and share your faith. You can go out today and share that, you know what? You're saved by grace through faith. It's not of works. Some people get upset at that. They'll look you right in the face. Well, I'm a good person. According to who? They're hypocrites. And so they stop him in the process of his teaching back in chapter 21, and we've looked at that. They stop him and they, they say, where's your credentials, pal? Who gave you the right to come in here? What authority are you teaching? By what? Who gave you this authority? Show us your credentials. Prove to us, right here and now in front of everybody. And basically his response to them was, you know what? I'm not going to tell you a thing. I don't owe you nothing. But here's what I'm going to tell you. You want an answer? I'll give you an answer. You're under the judgment of God. That's what he did. And so he tells them those three parables that we've been looking at the last three weeks. The first was a parable of two sons, remember? The one son said, oh, I'll obey obey your father. And then he didn't. And then the other one said, no, I'm not going to go work in the fields. But then he repented and he did. Well, Jesus points to the Pharisees and he says, you know what? You're like the, the son who said you would do something, but you're not doing it. You were given the charge of handling God's word. You were given the law of God and you've, you've misinterpreted it and you've used it as a club to beat the people with. You're like that son who said he was going to do something and didn't do it. And then he says this, which is very stinging. He says, tax collectors and harlots will enter the kingdom instead of you. In other words, those that repent are better than those that think they're self-righteous. And then he gives them a second parable. It was the parable of the vineyard. Remember with the tenants, he, he lent out his farm to the tenant farmers. And the man that owned the, the vineyard is a picture of God. And he leased it out to these farmers. And when it came time for the owner to come back and to get a portion of what was raised, he sent his, the owner sent his servants back. And what did they do? They killed him. Beat him up. So then he sent his son. He sent his own son, the owner of the property, sent his sons, thinking, surely they won't do this to my son. And what they do? The story tells, the parable says that they killed the son. And finally, he has, he says to them, you are the tenant farmers. You're the ones that kill the prophets. All these prophets came and they told of the Messiah. And what did they do? They killed him. They didn't want to hear it. The religious leaders of Israel didn't want to hear it. And so he says, you know what? For a time, the kingdom will be taken from you and given to someone who is worthy of it. And then we come to a third parable. In verse chapter 22, the parable of the wedding feast. And we saw that last week. And basically, he likens these religious leaders to those who were already invited. They were invited before anybody else. But they just couldn't clear the calendar. They didn't think it was important to come to the king's son's wedding. They refused to honor his son. So he tells them, you know what? You're shut out. You're not welcome now. Matter of fact, I'm going to send my servants out and get other people to come and fill your seats. You're going to be kept out of the kingdom now. You refuse my invitation, will you? 
And the others are going to come and take your place. Three judgments of, par- of parable, parabolic judgments that he gives out here. And in their frustration and their anger, they, they, they just want to wipe Jesus away. They want to make him go away as soon as possible. And so they huddle together and they design a strategy. They design a strategy. And you ask, well, what, what exactly is the, the strategy See, we see here these, these works of wicked men. And we see what's going on here. But they follow these three judgments, of these three parables, with three questions. They pose three questions to Jesus. And you can read them for yourself. They're in 20, chapter 22. We're going to look at one this morning, verses 15 to 22, dealing with the matter of taxes. And then also the matter of the resurrection in verses 23 to 33. And then also the matter of the commandments in verses 34 to 40. We'll be looking at those in the near future. But let's read our text just so we can put it in perspective. And then we'll kind of look at it and begin to look at these these works of the wicked men. It says in Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse 15, Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, We know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why do you put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Well, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Render, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled. And they left him and went away. The works of wicked men. What did they want? What did they want? It says right there they wanted to, what? They plotted how to entangle him in his words. That, that word entangle is a word in the New Testament used to mean to catch off guard, to catch by surprise, to catch someone in mistake or trap somebody, to deliberately provoke somebody to the point where they make a mistake. And when you read the Gospel of Luke, it's very interesting because... Here we're told that it's the Pharisees' disciples and the Herodians. But in Luke, it just says they're a bunch of spies. (laughs) It doesn't give them the title. It just says a bunch of spies came. Because that's what they were doing. They were spying. They They were being, they were masquerading. They were trying to be somebody they're not. And what they wanted to do was to make him stay say an anti-Roman statement against the Roman government in front of everybody. Then they could go back and they could tell the Roman authorities. And the Roman authorities could come and charge them with insurrection and have them arrested. That was their plan. And they thought about it long and hard and they came up with this brilliant, they thought, plan. Well, who were these folks? It says it was the disciples of the Pharisees. You might say, well, why did the Pharisees send their disciples? 
Why didn't they just go back? Think about this for a second. Because Jesus knew who they were. He had already confronted them a couple times. He knew exactly who the Pharisees were. They couldn't go back very well in the presence of Jesus and act like, oh, you're so truthful and you're so great. And, you know, that wouldn't work. So they thought, you know what we're going to do? We're not going to go back. We'll send our disciples, our trusted, beloved disciples. And they get these guys together and they say, here's what we want you to do. And they devise a plan to trap Jesus. I mean, he would have recognized them right away. But then it also says, not only the Pharisees' disciples went... But the Herodians, and this takes a little bit of time to explain this, but I want you to understand who the Herodians were. We don't know a lot about the Herodians, to be honest with you. History doesn't tell us a whole lot. We don't have a lot of information. But as a Christian is someone who follows Christ, a Herodian would be somebody who follows Herod, right? It's not done thing rocket science. There you go. Okay, they were followers of Herod in some form or fashion. They weren't religiously motivated necessarily. They were more political, if you can think of that. Now, well, who was Herod? Herod was a dynasty of the Edomites who ruled in the land during Jesus' time. They had a, a dynasty of rulers. They were, they, they were not Jewish. They were Edomites. They weren't Romans. They were Edomites. Herod the Great, Herod Antipas, Herod Archelaus, his sons. All, all, these, all these were rulers. They were called Herods. And they ruled in the time of Christ. Well, Herod, the father had such a vast kingdom, he was over so much, he said, you know what, I'm going to split my kingdom in half, the north and the south. Herod Antipas, his one son, was the ruler of the north. Herod Archelaus was the ruler of the south. You remember Herod Antipas because he was the one who what? Beheaded John the Baptist. And if you look at the ministry of Christ, you realize that in his ministry, as he's teaching and going around, he kind of avoids the area where Herod will be. Because he knew that he didn't like, didn't like him. But the guy in the south, Herod Archelaus, he was basically dis- de- deposed. For whatever reason, the Roman government, the Herods ruled by the pleasure of the Roman government. The Roman government looked at that and said, okay, you know what? Antipas, you're doing a good job up here. We're just going to let you to continue your little dynasty rule here. That's all right, but you're going to do it at our pleasure. You're going you're to kind of run things for the Romans. And in the south, same thing. But it was the other son, Archelaus. For some reason, he must have messed up because the Roman government came in and said, you know what, you're out of here, pal, and we're going to put in our own governor, and we know that governor to be Pilate. All right? So you kind of see how this is playing out. And the Romans would leave these Herods in there as long as it, it would favor them. And if it got to a point like it did in the south where it didn't, they'd kick them out and they'd bring in their own leader called a governor, Pilate. And so you, you have around the area where Jerusalem is or whatever, that's the, the area where Pilate is the Roman governor. 
So it, it may be, we don't know, but it, it could be that these Herodians are actually Jews. The followers of Herod, they're Jews who identified with their political viewpoint. And they liked the political power of Herod. They didn't want to be under Rome. It was much more easier for them to swallow if it was a Herod that was ruling over them. So they may have wanted a Herod in the south. Maybe that's why they were following, that's why they were called Herodians. We don't know. But they were pro-Herod. Now, notice this. The Pharisees, the Pharisees were anti-Rome. Anything to do with Rome, they didn't want to have anything to do with. They despised the Roman oppression. They hated the Roman tyranny. They hated the idea that they worshipped pagan gods and they made, themse- made themselves even out to be deity. And there was a certain group of the Pharisees called zealots. And what these guys were, is it was kind of like a little strike team. Almost like a terrorist group. And they would go out and they would start fires and they would just create havoc for the Roman government. And they were Pharisees who were just totally sold out for the cause. Remember one of the Lord's disciples, Simon. His title was Simon the Zealot. They were very anti-Rome. And they looked at Rome coming into their area of, of where they lived, and they thought, you know what, this is an intrusion. This isn't right. And they brought in all their paganism and all that stuff, and just really irritated them. So the Pharisees were anti-Rome. And many of them were zealots. The Herodians, though, were pro-Rome. Even though they were Jewish, maybe, followers of Herod, they were pro-Rome. They were pro-Rome in the the sense that Rome had allowed Herod Antipas to stay in as ruler. And they much would rather have that than somebody else appointed by the Romans. So they, they sought the favor of Rome. So you have these two groups that just are like oil and water. They just don't mix. But they're coming together for a common cause, to come against Christ. And you might say, well, why would the Pharisees who are anti-Rome, recruit some people who are pro-Rome. That doesn't make any sense. Stop and think about it, though. The whole idea is to get Jesus charged with insurrection, right? From the the Roman authorities. Well, if the Pharisees themselves went to Rome and said, hey, there's this guy down there starting an insurrection against Rome, what would the authorities do? They would look at the Pharisees and go, okay, you don't like us anyway. Is this a trap? Why would you warn us about somebody causing an insurrection? So they knew that wouldn't fly. So they needed somebody on board who was pro-Rome, and so they reached out to these Herodians. And you say, well, why would the Herodians cooperate with them? Because they they hated Jesus just as much as, as the Pharisees. I mean, it was one of the Herodians' leaders, Herod Antipas, that had the forerunner of the Messiah executed. His head cut off because John the Baptist confronted that Herod with his wicked lifestyle. So they agreed, even though they disagreed, they agreed to come against Christ. Isn't that the way it is today? 
I mean, stop and think about it. You, you can have groups from, that are totally polarized in most situations. But you know what? When they come against the church or they come against the things of God or they come against Christ, boy, they get polarized real quick. And they're willing to get along. So it kind of sets the stage for this. These, these wicked men, they were a group of the disciples of the Pharisees and the Herodians. What did they, they want? They wanted to catch him in a situation where he would be charged with insurrection. That's what they desired to do. Well, how did they, how did they go about doing this? How did they work this? First of all, they flatter him. Look at what it says in our text. It says, they sent the disciples along with the Herodians, and here's what they said. Teacher which is a, a, a term of authority, a, a term of uh, respect. Back then, if you were called teacher or rabbi, that was, I mean, you were definitely up the, the food chain a couple notches. So they say, teacher, we know that you are, and look at what it says, true. <laughs> we know that you are true. Now remember, the whole time, these disciples of the Pharisees think that Jesus has the foggiest idea who they are. He thinks, oh, you know, they think, oh, we're just part of the crowd. So we'll go in there and flatter him, say nice things about him. Teacher, we know that you are true, and you teach the way of God truthfully. In other words, you're a man of integrity. You, what you say is true, and, and the way you say it is with, with conviction. You speak truth. And he says, you teach the way of God. Well, what is that? That's opposed to the way of man. If you want to know what that is, look at Psalm 1. It tells us very clearly there's a way that leads by the tree of life and by the river. It's not the way of the scorners or the sinners those kind of people, it's the way God has prepared. It's the true way to God. It's true righteousness, not self-made righteousness. And they're saying these things. And then they even say there, they say, and you do not care about anyone's opinion. What does that mean? That means basically you say it no matter what people care about. You're not concerned with popularity, which is another way of saying, wow, you, you have integrity. You're not going to be one thing to one person and another thing to another person. And then it says you're not swayed by appearances. In other words, it doesn't matter really who you're standing before. You could be standing before a king or you could be standing before somebody that's really angry with you. You're going to say the same thing because it's the truth. See, do you understand the truth is the truth, is the truth, is the truth. There's not different forms of the truth. See, today we live in a relativistic society that thinks, oh, we just make up our own truth. So when you go out and you say, no, Jesus said, he is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Well, that's a little narrow-minded. But that's the truth. Just because you choose not to believe it doesn't mean it's not the truth. You can sit there all day long and say, hey, you know what? I'm going to jump up in the air and I'm just going to float. I'm never going to come down. Really? Well, let's see how that works out for you. <laughs> Go ahead, do it. I want to watch this. What's going to happen? You're going to come down. 
Why? Because there's a truth of gravity. It's a law. It's reality. You can't change it. So they're flattering him with all these things. And you notice everything they said was true, right? They didn't say anything that was false. The only problem was they didn't mean it. They didn't mean it. See, that's what the Old Testament calls flattery. Flattery basically is the idea that you build up in in someone's mind, you you, you build up their ego to the point where they're they're stuck trying to live up to that built-up ego. (laughs) And then you walk away and say, I'll have fun with that. You set them up for the kill. And that's what they were doing. They They were flattering him. They didn't mean it. In John 8, 44, it says, You are the father, your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, and because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. See, he, he knew exactly who these people were. And they sought to trap him. They thought somehow because of their flattering and their nice words or whatever, it would cause him to respond in his elevated ego. After all, he had all these people following him. They were, they were approaching this from a purely secular standpoint. And now this, is, this really gets good at this point because look at what happens. Verse 17. Tell us then... What you think. In other words, give us your opinion on this. We want a ruling on this Jesus, you teacher who are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you don't care about anybody's opinions, and you're not worried about who you're standing in front of. We want an answer from you. And they pose this question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Shall we pay taxes or not? Now, Stop and look at what he's actually asking, or they're asking him. It's a, it's a pretty, it seems like a pretty simple question, doesn't it? But it's very intricate. They actually thought about this. And they thought, how do we phrase this the right way so that we can trap him? And the key is basically that word tax or tribute, some versions say. The word census, which comes from the Latin census, which we get census from. What's a census? You count everybody, right? Well, this was a tax, basically kind of like a poll tax. It was a personal tax on every individual in the Roman government. So they'd go around once a year and they'd count how many people and everybody had to pay their tax. Now, the Roman government had a lot of different taxes. They had taxes on the highways and byways and waterways and all kinds of taxes. But this was a pretty important one because it went right down to the individual. And even the Jews had to pay taxes. They had to give certain things to the temple to support that. But each individual paid a set amount every year. And the amount of that, we're told, was a denarius. A denarius was one day's wage. So out of a year, you had to give one day's wage to the government because of what they supported you with. Protection, highways, byways, all those things. Resources. 
The Roman government would provide that for the people, so they were collecting their tax. It was one day's wage for a Roman soldier. It was a fair wage for any worker at all. That's what was required. It wasn't an abnormal tax. It was a very basic tax. But you have to understand, this did not sit well with the Jewish people. The Roman tax system was really an abuse that they used, especially for the Jewish people. And the reason they viewed it as such an abuse was because the Jewish people viewed themselves as the people of God. They saw themselves as a theocracy, not a democracy, a theocracy, who was ruled by God. And when Rome, this pagan government, came along, and they moved in and they imposes their taxes on these people, you could see where that would be a problem for them. They thought, well, if I'm giving them my money, this belongs to God because I'm God's people. Why should I give it to a pagan government? Well, this actually developed even in AD 6, the the same year Archelaus was deposed, Herod Archelaus in the southern kingdom there, and the Roman government was put in. There was a rebellion that was begun. And the rebellion was led by a man named Judas of Galilee. And Judas basically got a bunch of people around him, and he had this insurrectionist kind of group. And they would go out and they would bring forth all kinds of problems for the government. His theme was basically, God is our only God. God is our Lord, God is our ruler, and we're not going to pay any taxes to Rome. It was a census for taxation purposes. And that's really what caused this whole revolt by this Judas of Galilee. You say, well, what happened to him? Well, they killed him. Killed him and all his followers. It's a short-lived little insurrection. That's, you don't go against the Roman government. That's how serious it was. But see, they felt that this tax on each individual was the most offensive tax of all. They could look at the highways and the taxes on that and the taxes on goods and commerce. They kind of could go along with that. But when you started picking out individuals and saying, okay, each individual has to pay a tax, that, it's almost like the government owns you. And they were thinking, we're the people of God. They don't own us. Who do they think they are to collect any of this from us? And this insurrection was put down quickly, but really this whole underlying feeling continued. Um, Josephus says that in 66 AD, it was the same attitude toward this taxation problem that started the revolution of 66 AD. And basically, what that ended with? That ended with the, te- the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. So this is not a little issue. This is a big issue. So they're painting this scenario, and they're saying, if Jesus says pay the tax, he's going to have problems with all these Jewish people gathered around. I mean, the whole nation's going to be angry at him. He's going to be seen as anti-Jewish. And so they don't believe that he's going to say that. They also believe that he does speak for God in spite of the fact that they don't like him. They think that he does 
speak for God in some fashion. So there's no way possibly that he can say pay the tax because they think that that would be an offense to God. And Surely he must know that of all people. He would know that, so he's not going to go that route. So he's going to say, oh, don't pay the tax. And then the Herodians are going to go back to the Roman government and say, hey, there's a guy down there telling people not to pay their taxes. See where this is going? And they come back and they arrest him. That was their plan. That's what they're hoping for. Well, look at his, the the words of sinless man, the words of Christ here are amazing. How does he answer this? Look at verse 18. We see here his omniscience. Omniscience is an attribute of God that means he, he knows everything. He knows everything. There's nothing God doesn't know. Do you understand that? Nothing. And in verse 18, it says, But Jesus, aware of their malice. It's a way of saying, aware of their scheming hearts. He knew exactly who they were. They weren't fooling him. See, up to this point, they're thinking, hey, we're we're masquerading this pretty good. He doesn't even know who we are. He says, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? One version says, knowing their wickedness. Do you know you can't sneak up on God? You, you can't come along and, 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 you know, come up from behind and, and, and scare him. You can't surprise him. There's nothing like that. God knows everything. If God knows everything, don't you think he knows your deepest and, 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 and most hurtful pains and agonies right now as you sit here this morning? He knows that. He knows exactly what you're going through. Don't you think he knows what's going to happen two weeks from now? When maybe you get that diagnosis from the doctor and, oh, it's not a good one, or, or a loved one passes away. Don't you think he knows? He knows that. God transcends time, beloved. He sees everything like a snapshot, like right now, which is hard for us to comprehend. But that's the God we serve. In John 2.25, it says, Jesus said this, He need not anybody tell him what was in man. John said, because he knew what was in the heart of man, talking about Christ. He knew the questions before they even were asked. He knew their intentions. And so he says, why do you test me, you hypocrites? I mean, they were correct, weren't they? He is pretty truthful. He does have integrity. He doesn't care who's standing before him, right? I mean, a group of people here, and this is what he says to them. Why do you test me, you hypocrites? He calls them right out. He wasn't intimidated. He didn't really care what anybody's opinion was. He called them, though, exactly what they were. They were fakers. They were pretenders. They were hypocrites. Now, remember, he'd never seen these people before. That was the whole plan, right? We're going to send our disciples because they weren't around Jesus. He doesn't even know who they are. But yet he does because he's God. He knows everything. Calls them right out, you phonies. I mean, they're trying to flatter him with all their words, flowery words. Oh, teacher, one who speaks the truth. And he says, you know what? 
What you're saying is true, but your motive is rotten to the core. He knew it because he was God. He was the son of God. He was omniscient. He knew everything. Intelligent comprehension. He, he perceived that. No one needed to tell him that. That word wickedness there means that they intentionally practiced this with ill will, malice. You know, you can get in a car wreck and, and someone can die in that wreck and you know, you, you're not necessarily charged with first-degree murder, right? You're charged with manslaughter. But if you go across the street to your, your neighbor's house and they open the door and shoot him in the head, that's going to be charged with first-degree murder. Because you thought about it. You had to get the gun. You had to walk across the street. You had to knock on the door. You had to wait for him to come to the door. And then you had to plug him in the head. Forethought. It's malice. That's where these guys were. They were back there with their Pharisees, the teachers, and they were scheming this whole thing out. You know, Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10 says, The heart is deceitful, beloved, above all things, and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart, I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. God knows what's in your heart. Look at his response. He says, why are you tempting me? Why are you putting me to the test? You think I'm going to fail this test? Is that what you think? You're a bunch of phonies. You're a bunch of hypocrites. I mean, flattery is one of the, the, the sins in the Old Testament. You read through Proverbs, you read through Psalms. It's condemned over and over and over again. So he turns the table on them once again. And he unmasks them. And from this accusation, he asks them, basically, in verse 19, he says, show me the coin for the tax. In other words, okay, how do you pay this thing? Show it to me. Well, can you see all these these disciples and the Herodians, hurry up, hurry up, get, you know, get one, hurry up. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they think they got him at this point, right? He's getting close, he's going to say it. <laughs> Show me the coin. So somebody gives him a coin, he looks at it. They brought him a denarius, that's how you paid that tax. And Jesus said, whose likeness and inscription is this? Ask him another question. Doesn't seem like a hard question. At this point, they still think that he's along for the ride, you know, they still got him cornered, you know. Oh, well, it's Caesar's. And then it says he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. There was a whole bunch of different coinage back in that time. The Greeks had coins, the Romans had coins, the Romans had coins of copper, silver, uh, gold. This was probably a, a silver coin. And as a result... Only the, the emperors could, could uh, print these um, gold and silver coins. The other groups of government could actually, the Senate could, the Roman government, the Senate could do a copper coin. But if it was a gold or a silver coin, the emperor himself minted it. So it would reflect the image of the Caesar of that time. And it would not only have his image on it, but it would have some writing identifying him. 
I mean, we do the same thing to our coins, right? You look on the coin, you have, we, our, our guys are dead, okay, that are on the coins. But back then, they would have the living Caesar put it on there. It was to kind of promote his rule and his reign and all that stuff. But it, 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 this little coin would offend a Jew in a big-time way. First of all, because it reminded them of the Roman oppression, of the fact that they were under Gentile authority. Right there in your face, every time you pull one of those coins out, you saw Caesar, and you're like, huh. Secondly, it was an image. And if you know anything about Judaism, in the Old Testament, it says that they were to have no what? Graven image. And so when you looked at somebody's image, that offended them too. I mean, even in places in Israel today, if Orthodox Jews see you taking pictures, they'll chew you out. They don't, they don't want any images at all, period. They're very legalistic that way. And so this coin that was used to pay this tax, this denarius was, a, was a, just a hard thing for them to swallow. And so he asked them, well, whose image is it? And they say, well, it's Caesar's. could have been Augustus, it could have been Tiberius, it could have been different folks. On one side it would have him sitting on his throne, it would have his head, the other side would have a picture of a throne with the, the uh, Caesar up there in all his high priestly garments. Because in, in that day, in that culture, it was, it was a religious symbol as well. Because you had to worship these guys. This wasn't just, you know, like the President of the United States. All right, this was somebody that demanded worship from the people. And that's why the Jews had a real issue with this. I mean, Christians were killed in the Roman persecution of the church because they failed to worship the emperor. So they had a real problem with this. And so they said, well, I'm not going to give this coin that calls me to worship Caesar to them. They had to pay him with that coin. They couldn't use their own. What is our responsibilities to our government? You can read them there in the outline. We're to pay our taxes, Romans 13. We're to obey the laws of the state unless they exceed their God-given limit or violate God's moral law. That's very clear. And we are to pray for our leaders. And then you look at the responsibilities to our God. See, there's two sides to the coin. Sorry the pun, but there's two sides to the coin here. In the Roman mind, it was you're supporting the government through paying this tax, but every time you give us one of these scenarios, you're, you're basically okaying that you're, you're worshiping Caesar. It was a religious token as well. And so that's where the Jews had a real issue with this. Because they said, hey, we're not going to worship anybody but God. Well, what are our responsibilities to our God? We are to worship only God. Exodus 23 says, you shall have no other gods before me. Acts 5, 28 29 says, we are to obey God's moral law and commandments first. And then it also says we are to oppose and work to change any laws that oppose God's moral law and commands through the political process. 
That's why we vote. That's why we believe it's as a, as a citizen of the United States, you have an obligation to go and render your vote. Because it's important. Stand up for righteousness. Proverbs 14.34 says, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. And beloved, our nation has a major reproach on it at this time in history. It got so bad, this whole idea of worship, even before Jesus' time, back in 17 B.C., Augustus Caesar saw a star, like a shooting star, and he basically used that as a sign from God, and what he did is he called an Advent celebration. And the Roman College of Priests were called together in 17 B.C., and he was the chief, and they voted to grant mass absolution from sins for all the people in the entire empire. And they made actual coins, made in 17 B.C., that same period, hailing Augustus Caesar as the Son of God, and the state then offered salvation in addition to prosperity. And that's how serious they took this stuff. So he says, whose image is it? Well, it's Caesar's. And he says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. That word render there means pay back. See, they didn't use that word when they, back here, in, 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 uh, when they said, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar's? That word in the original language says to give as a gift. Not to pay as a debt. This is a different word. Jesus uses a word that says, no, this is a debt that you owe the government. Because you're living under their leadership. It speaks of an obligation, of a responsibility. It's something that you don't have a choice about. He says, give back what is his. He made it. He minted it. It has his head on it. Give it back to him. Why would you want to keep it anyway? It belongs to his economy. And he refers to it as a payment of death. But they said, oh, no, no, it's all the money is ours, and if we want to give it, we give it as a gift. See, that's where they got in trouble. I mean, even a pagan, idolatrous government, even a blasphemous government, even a government that's about to execute the Son of God, and Jesus is sitting there saying, no, you need to give him the debt. You need to give him the tax. That's what they require you give it to him." got his head on it, he's got his picture on it, give it to him. So there's not a lot of room here for Christians to rise up and say, oh, we're not going to pay the government because it's a secular government and we don't agree with everything they do. I believe that as good Christian citizens, we should pay our taxes. I mean, the Lord knows there's enough loopholes out, out there that you can get around paying your fair share, probably. Most people do. But you should still be intent on paying your fair share, whatever God lays out in your income thing, you pay those taxes if that's what the government requires of you. You don't fight against that. Well, look at how lost they are. Instead of looking at this and saying, wow, this is incredible. The words of Christ are just incredible. This guy really must be the Son of God. Maybe we should listen to him. No, their hearts grow even harder. It says there that they wonder at the words of God. 
When they heard it, they marveled. They were blown away. He blew them out of the water once again. But then look, how sad is this? It says, and they left him and went away. They left him and went away. Here is the Son of God basically spelling it out for him, for them. He's given them miracle after miracle. He's given them the gospel over and over and over and over and over again. And their hearts are so hard. Even after him, they thought they had him. They thought they had him cornered. They thought, yeah, he's going to answer this this way and then we're going to get him. But because he's God and he's infinitely more wise than these religious fools, he just turns them upside down and spits them out and says, there. And they went, wow. But then they turned around and they left him and went away. You know, I want you to know this morning, Isaiah 59, verses 1 to 8, says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that he cannot save, or his ear dull that he cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Do you understand that between you and God, there's a a roadblock called sin? I hope you understand that. Sounds serious, but it's true. But God offers a way out. It says in Romans 3, verses 21 to 25, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned, all, and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. Propitiation, excuse me. By His blood to be received by faith. There's no distinction. We've all sinned. We've all blown it. Even these guys in the, in the, sitting here in front of Jesus, hearing him t- teach the way he did, they were just in awe. But then they turned and they walked away. Romans 5.8 says, But God shows his love for us and that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now we're about ready to celebrate our communion time here where we take a cup of juice and a cracker and, and we, it, it symbolizes the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. Don't think that you can just work your way out of your pit of sin. You can try to be as religious as you want. These people were very religious. They gave their lives for their religion. But you know what? It it wasn't good enough. Because God's standard is not our standard. I pray that you would cry out to God cry out to Christ today to save you as we enter into this time of communion. Father, we pray this morning. Lord, we we thank you for these words of truth that we've heard from your word. Lord, incredible how Jesus marveled the people that he taught. Lord, we thank you that he, uh, he didn't beat around the bush. He took this thing head on. And they thought they had him cornered And yet, once again, he proves to be the righteous Son of God. And Lord, it's so sad, the end of that that passage of Scripture, they marveled at one point, and yet then they left and they went away. I can't help to think how many people come in here week after week, 
hear the truth, hear the gospel, hear the grace of Christ proclaimed. And yet they walk away. They leave the very Savior that came to save them. It's like drowning in a pool and the lifeguard jumps in to save you and you drown the lifeguard. It wouldn't make any sense. The Lord Jesus Christ came that we would have life and have it more abundantly. Maybe you're tired of carrying the burden of your sin. Maybe you're tired of playing games with God. Beloved, this is not a game. This is dead on serious. There's a place called heaven. Those who trust in the Savior will go there. There's a place called hell. Totally removed from God. Utter darkness. Torment. Those who reject the offer of Christ's salvation through his death and burial and resurrection will end up there one day. It's not a story. It's not a fairy tale. It's reality. And you can choose to believe it or not. Father, we thank you for our time. We pray that you would open the hearts of those who have yet to come to you. We pray for our communion time, Lord, that as believers we would set aside anything that would hinder our worship of you during this time. And Lord, I pray that you would uh, just allow this to be a personal time between you and us. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.